$209 billion. That's the total amount to be spent this year according to New York State's enacted fiscal year 2022 budget. It's actually a fairly shocking number, not just because of its sheer size, but when considering just six months ago, New York State still seemed to be staring down a four-year revenue shortfall totaling $60 billion. However, revenues are turning out to be much stronger than expected, and the federal government passed the biggest economic recovery and stimulus package since the New Deal. And this package included what may have been the largest state and local government relief program in history. As a result, New York State went from rags to riches, albeit somewhat fleeting riches since the federal aid isn't forever. Still, with all these funds coming in, the state raised personal income and business taxes and funded a host of economic relief and recovery programs and boosted education aid like never before. So what will this mean for the economic recovery, for individuals who experienced pain during the pandemic, for students, and for the state's long-run fiscal future? Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. This is Andrew Ryan from the CBC. And we have a great episode in store for you today about the state budget, the state revenue picture, state spending, and so much more. The budget was adopted in April, but for a variety of reasons, has not gotten the attention it deserves. And of course, now we're a couple months down the line and we've learned even more about the state's fiscal picture. So we're going to break it all down here on this episode, and we're very happy to be joined by three guests for this episode. So we also have from CBC, Patrick Arecki, the Director of State Studies. Patrick, welcome. Thanks for having me. We have State Senator Liz Kruger of Manhattan. Senator Kruger, thanks for being here. Pleasure. And we have EJ McMahon, Senior Fellow at the Empire Center and Adjunct at the Manhattan Institute. EJ, thanks for coming back on. Thank you for having me. All right, so we have a lot to dig into here. Patrick, why don't you start us off a little bit with just some of the top line basics to set the stage for people, uh, the size of the state budget, the spending increase, some of the revenue strength that we've seen, uh, the federal aid, uh, there were tax increases, and there's still future uh, budget gaps. What do, you, what do you have for us to lay the, the foundation here? Yeah, obviously, there are a lot of moving parts over the last 16 months or so. And I think that is important to, to reflect on how the situation has evolved over the last 16 months. Um, really, this discussion at first, I think, centers on the receipt side of the equation of the state budget more so than the spending um, plan, mostly because where we were a, a little over a year ago was that the state was projecting a tax receipt shortfall induced by the pandemic of about $15 billion a year. And that's on a base of about $100, $105 billion in total state receipts. So that's a huge receipts loss for the state to contend with. So throughout the year, that was the discussion was how is the state going to deal with this massive hole in the state budget? Uh, and for a long time, it was, you know, the federal government should come through with this exact amount of money and that $15 billion figure, what was, was talked about a lot. Important to keep in mind too, that the receipts loss was a multi-year impact. So $15 billion one year, $15 billion the next, the next, and $60 billion over four years was the problem really to solve. So it was throughout early last year, a, a massive gap for the state to solve. But what we saw kind of unfold 
over the course of the year was that repeatedly the state's tax receipts outlook improved. So that $60 billion over four years, by the time that the budget was being finalized in March of this year, was down to about $12 billion over four years. So a much, much more um, manageable kind of, of hole to deal with. Now, at the same time, you also had, as Andrew mentioned, that federal aid comes through, um, which is exactly $12 billion in uh, direct federal aid and about nine or $10 billion in other targeted aids that not only close the rest of that state tax gap, but actually provide even more funding to be invested in recovery and, and other purposes. And then um, you get into kind of what was enacted in the state's budget. So what was enacted in, in April of this year, um, there were some tax increases. So a personal income tax increase at the top kind of income brackets and, and new brackets there, and also increases in the state's business taxes. So that's another roughly $4 billion annually. So bottom line, all told, take all that together. What was a huge tax receipts loss a year plus ago is now uh, significantly more money to spend in this year's budget. Um, so the spending can kind of be broken down into two timing tranches. First upfront is mostly on recovery purposes. And then in the out years, more of the new spending, as Andrew mentioned again, is in school aid. Taking you know, the two sides of the equation together, um, the state's budget gaps, so the difference between uh, receipts and spending were closed significantly. What was about a $10 billion gap coming into finalizing the budget um, is down to zero in uh, both the current year and next year, and about one and a half to $2 billion in the out years, which is much, much smaller than what was projected kind of coming into budget making. Thank you, Patrick. Senator Kruger, the ground was really shifting as you were negotiating this budget. Um, describe a little bit sort of the problems you felt like you were solving, what you accomplished, uh, you know, sort of the big picture of, of how it came together and what was, what, was, what was shifting underneath you and the decisions that you, you came to in, in finalizing this budget at the end of March, beginning of April. Well, even start a year earlier, which is really when COVID was hitting exactly as we were trying to complete that year's budget. And we really did think the world was coming to an end in its own way at the time. We didn't know how bad things were going to be. Things proved to get pretty bad. I think all of us who lived through COVID in this country and this state would agree. But we also didn't know what would happen with revenue as the economy seemed to be closing down overnight and what we would need to help fight COVID, which turned out to be a lot of money for a lot of different purposes. So then you go forward a year or close to a year and we're trying to evaluate where we are going forward. And we were seeing, you know, the good news is it did appear that despite everything that had gone wrong for 12, 14 months, we were coming back faster than we originally imagined with revenues increasing, hooray. And yet we had spent far more in many different ways than people um, imagined. And we needed more because we need to rebuild um, and renew and really take this opportunity, we believed in the Senate, to evaluate where New York should be going and how it should be setting itself up um, for whatever that new normal is, which are changes in our economy, um, changes in our communities, the recognition that we would need more money um, to strengthen our school systems, 
so that if this happened again, we were more prepared to have mental health services at, available from our smallest children to our oldest New Yorkers who were all truly suffering almost a level of PTSDs from the last year of COVID. Um, and then we were begging the federal government for money, which we believed was the job of the federal government in emergencies. They're the only ones who get to print money in the basement. We believe they should be giving it out to the states to help us, all 50 of us who needed it. And yet under the Trump administration, it wasn't, it wasn't coming or not enough soon enough. And so as we were completing this year's April 1 budget, we were still holding our breath about how much new federal money we could count on getting from the Biden administration and for what purposes, because despite the description of Patrick that, you know, it's true, we ended up in a much, much better place than we ever imagined only a year after COVID started, we still had serious holes to address both in infrastructure and rebuild and thinking through um, the next pieces. And so we were waiting for the federal money and approvals and we're, you know, here we are, we got most of what we were asking for. I'm looking for wood to knock on. You don't see me, but I'm knocking on my wooden desk. And now we're trying to make sure it goes out appropriately. And so, for example, I just finished the morning conversation with the OTADA commissioner discussing how the emergency rent funds um, are being handled because there's this giant application process from people who weren't able to pay their rent because they lost their jobs and they're trying to get back to normal and whole. Um, they, I believe they need to pay the landlords the rent they couldn't afford to pay them. So we're using federal money to help us with the emergency rent relief. There's a mortgage program, not exactly identical, but also trying to see how that works best. We've put 800 million one time only into the state budget specifically to support um, small businesses, not loans, but actual grants to help them get back up on their feet. So many of them had to close and we're hoping that they will be able to reopen, rebuild. Um, again, monies for mental health and um, strengthening of our public education system statewide. We saw all kinds of holes in our safety nets. Um, holes in our safety nets for older New Yorkers with endless things that didn't go right in nursing home settings um, and in various communities. So it's interesting. We look at a budget as a one-year timeline, and then we talk about, are we over? Are we under? What do we think is going to happen in two years? We're never really right because we're just guesstimating anyway. Um, things happen really quickly, it turns out, especially when you hit a huge crisis like we just did. Um, and you have to be able to sort of chew gum and sing the Star Spangled Banner at the same time um, while you're figuring out what are the best answers. So I viewed this year's budget as an opportunity to look at where do we think New York is going in the future? Where do we hope we can get to? And what will be the best use of the various monies that might be one-time monies from the federal government
versus rethinking revenue and expenditures on an ongoing basis. Because just because we used to do it one way doesn't mean that's how we should be doing it going forward. Great, thank you. Thanks, thanks very much. A lot to unpack there, Senator. That was yes. that was amazing. I do want to come back to tracking the money because you've been a leader in performance management legislation and independent budget office. And and so I do want to come back to that, but let's stick on the fiscal for a second and turn bring uh, EJ into the conversation. The future budget gaps. We know back 16 months ago, suddenly Medicaid was exploding and at what is unbudgeted, we saw these $9 billion budget gaps. Here we are after the uh, pandemic starting to uh, subside, we're recovering and, and there are tax increases, but look at those budget gaps. They're almost unprecedented in their size relative to the budget. They're so much smaller. So what gives, is there any problem? Uh, yes, I, the, there's, the problem is even for, is, is further in the future, but larger than ever. I, it was, uh, Senator Kruger said that one of the concerns is where are we going in the future? And I think, I think that is the key concern that we, we probably view it in a different way, or perhaps have different versions of the future. The governor had a quote, um, at, in his summing up of the budget or his celebratory press conference, where he said, this budget will set the trajectory of the state for the next 10 years. I think that is precisely the problem. I think it does set the trajectory of the state for the next 10 years. And I think where it's, where it sets it is to begin in a couple of years to begin to go in a trajectory that goes wildly beyond what the state can sustain. So a couple of numbers that are really remarkable. Um, and they were updated, I think, in the most recent state controllers analysis of the budget. If you put together all of the, the um, stimulus um, and COVID relief plans starting in, during the, the, the pandemic and the Trump administration, Congress, continuing through the American Rescue Plan that the Biden administration pushed, this, uh, almost $12 billion was spent through the state budget, just at the state level, through the state budget in the fiscal year just ended, 2021. And over the next four fiscal years, that is ending in the spring of 25, another $39 billion is going to flow through the budget and be spent uh, uh, by the state of New York. Just the state money. We're not talking about the money that goes directly to businesses, et cetera. Now, that all is not budget relief. We, we're all focused also on this nearly $13 billion in unrestricted aid the state received under the American Rescue Plan. But the, the, the amounts are would have been inconceivable, um, certainly be pre-pandemic, but even once the pandemic began, I mean, these, these are, are really enormous amounts. The problem is not so much the, the, the programs of the sort that Senator Kruger was, Kruger was mentioning. For instance, um, a few billion for rent relief, a few billion for excluded workers, a billion in small business and arts and entertainment relief, whatever one makes of those things or their particulars. And I think that you were alluding to Senator, there's a, some real problems with the flow of the rent relief money and the application progress process that need to be resolved. But put aside all that, whatever one makes of those and whether they were the right amounts or I don't think anybody argues that's, that there was that nothing should have or could have been done in those areas. But the problem with the budget of the, the reason to be concerned about going forward is not those programs. It's the extent to which directly and indirectly federal aid enabled and even subsidized increases in recurring spending, recurring operational spending commitments by the state of New York, 
particularly in the areas that already command over half our state operating funds budget, which is K-12 education and Medicaid. That's the problem. Um, there's something like $15 billion in added spending commitments through the general fund, which no matter how temporarily funded by federal money, that's the recurring, that's the base of recurring spending. We've made tremendous added commitments um, that are potentially recurring in both those areas. We had a Medicaid deficit developing on the eve of the pandemic, as we know, in the neighborhood of $2 billion. The governor had some proposals for resolving it. They became sort of subsumed and added federal aid, but we're, our Medicaid spending is now through an even higher roof than it was before. Um, the money that's spent on schools, with all due respect to what the senator had to say, really, unless it's specifically for capital, anything you spend on schools ultimately is recurring commitment to personnel. There's, there is no, you don't, you don't stuff money into the pockets of the kids. I mean, there's only one way to spend it, other than facilities or uh, and or and or curriculum, which is always modest. It's basically on staff, and that becomes a recurring commitment. So we already spend a huge share of our budget on schools and spend more heavily on schools per pupil and by other measures than any state. We've just significantly increased that commitment. And in fact, I don't think it's any coincidence that the amount raised by the so-called new millionaire tax, the higher rates on higher earners, matches almost precisely the permanent increase in school aid. I think that was in fact what it was intended to be was the recurring funding source for school aid. The problem is, it may be unreliable and we're gonna have problems in the future maintaining these commitments just over the, the budgetary horizon. And, and Senator Kruger, did you wanna to respond to that a little? Um, so yes, EJ of course is right that education and healthcare have ended up being a huge percentage of New York State's budget. And you have to ask the question, do we really think we shouldn't be investing in education funding for K through college. Um, I don't think we shouldn't be spending that money. So it is possible that a decent amount of the education funds will be recurring expenses. But we also know that states that have better educational outcomes end up having better economies, more people wanting to start up businesses and keep their businesses in the states with quality education. Doesn't mean that we don't have inefficiencies we need to deal with, but we really try to focus both in this year and in the out years that the education money would go to ensuring the fair distribution of educational funds to underserved communities, a struggle the state has been dealing with for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and yes, some of that money will absolutely go to rebuilding the schools that in some cases are 100 years old in our cities throughout the state. And we need to be investing in the capital money. The Medicaid is the constant struggle, I think, for all of us because yes, Medicaid grew because we walked around saying we want everybody to have health insurance. And then when they applied for ACA, we discovered a huge percentage of the New Yorkers applying for um, what people call Obamacare were actually eligible for Medicaid in our state. And it was the most cost efficient health insurance program for them. So we saw a big jump 
in the number of New Yorkers who were covered by health insurance. And we all declared that was a victory. And then we noticed, oh, they actually went on Medicaid. I guess that's where the cost is going to be picked up. Um, I'm a believer in universal health care. I am hoping New York can get there sooner than later. Um, there are all kinds of complications with that kind of movement. Um, but I personally believe that is the challenge we must overcome if we are going to continue to be concerned about how much of our state funds are going to a program called Medicaid. Um, I'm much more interested in seeing a universal system in our state, which will require lots of changes in our policies towards taxation and employers versus individuals picking up certain costs, but actually potentially being very good for small businesses in New York. So, you know, I agree with EJ that the, the continuing challenge is healthcare, not the least of which is we're an aging population. Um, we all know that. We all know we're getting older as a percentage of, you know, overall um, population and older people tend to use more healthcare costs. And so that's another issue we can pretend we just don't want to have to deal with, but that's not working. Um, so one of the things that we didn't get to, for example, in this year, and I think we have to, is the fact that we are paying people who provide home care so little money that it's actually more economically advantageous to flip burgers in fast food restaurants, which is a much easier job than taking care of our elderly loved ones. So there is an enormous shortage in staff to provide home care services as the population in need of these services continues to grow. And we need to confront both our policies and our pay scale before the next issue blows up in healthcare, the fact that no one will take care of the elderly and frail. Can I just a quick question on the tax increases before we lose that and move on? Do you have any concern that increasing our business taxes and personal income taxes to the highest in the nation when combined with New York State's rates will have an economically uh, deleterious effect in any way? I actually don't. And I represent the wealthiest district in the state of New York. And so people were saying, well, the billionaires will leave. Well, I agree that there were some proposals that would have increased their taxes by, I think, as much as $50 billion a year. And my response was, but we didn't do anything like that. We did a relatively modest personal income tax increase for people whose household wages were over $2 million for a couple, $1 million for a single. And we did a relatively small increase in corporate taxes that would only apply, of course, to corporations who were doing well um, and would see their taxes go up. But many corporations had amazing years, even during COVID. I still have not had explained to me how certain companies could just take off during this time where no one seemed to have income from work. Um, so I am not actually concerned. I'm actually more concerned about the research coming out showing that our tax system overall in its federal, state, and local has become so skewed that the highest earners, both corporations and individuals in our country, 
are paying incredibly low tax rates, if not actually receiving refunds at the same time as they are borrowing money at almost no interest to avoid having to draw down their own funds, hence pay capital gains, but then getting to write off the borrowing as a tax loss. And I just think we all need to take a really hard look at how we structured our tax system, because what do we learn? And the research bears, bears me out here. People don't mind paying taxes if they think they're fair, if they think everybody is paying their fair share of taxes. And that's frankly getting harder and harder to argue in this country. So I would love to discuss tax policy, perhaps on another round table like this, uh, because I think there is a lot of meat there for us to dig into. Tax policy. We got universal health care. I'm sure we, we're, we're fostering a whole agenda. EJ, yeah, you were going to say. We're going to we're gonna have to up the frequency of these podcasts again, Andrew. Uh, the, 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 uh, I, I know it's a whole other area, so I won't, with that, I'm not getting into it more extensively. I would say there's another side to what the center just – and, and I, in, the facts don't support the claim that uh, the wealthy are not paying any taxes or are paying lower rates. There's just – it simply is not true. In New York alone, the top one millionaire, people who earn a million or more were paying 40% of the income tax uh, who are less than 1% of the tax paying population. We're very heavily, very heavily dependent on high earners in New York. The federal rate system is also steeply graduated. And in fact, the risk of the, I think of the tax policy we've gone deep, deeper into is that we've become more dependent than ever on the income tax in general and on high earners in general. Each high earner, the more they pay in taxes, the more they can take with them if they go. We've been leaching, we've been basically leaking about $100 million a year worth of millionaire earners in recent years, according to the best data from the tax department. And to deny that the tax increases that were done were not insignificant. They were on top of the existing rate that was supposedly temporary, but made permanent by this budget. On top of that, you're talking about an increase that ranged depending on income from 10 to 25% in a current tax bill that is no longer deductible against federal taxes, which has further increased the, the effective cost. So one, that this is a, this is a, it is a risky tax policy in the long run. And it adds to the, to the problem of sustainability attached to spending in the budget, I would say. I know taxes is a bigger issue that we could talk about all day, but I do is, it is one of the things that I think actually makes the, the, the underpinnings of the budget shakier when considered for the future. Any quick response to that, Senator Kruger, before we ask a new question? And, no, I mean, and I, I agree we, with EJ. That, that was a reference to salt that we're going to, I think we're going to stay away from salt. Right. Right. We're going to, we're going to keep salt and, off the table here. And yes, there's a lot of volatility in high income earners um, earnings and how they can move it around. And so that makes it volatile and we have to be careful of that. Um, but again, as I said, I think we need to take a really hard look at state and federal taxes and who it's hitting, who they're hitting, who they're not, and how particularly through corporations, um, we've allowed corporations to frequently avoid taxation on much of their business models. And that's, first of all, that's an uneven playing field for our smaller companies. 
and it's draining revenue out of the state that we should be receiving because they're doing their businesses here. All right, let's get each of you to weigh in a little bit, um, including you, Patrick, if, if you have uh, any analysis or thoughts on this. But um, why don't we stick with you, Senator Kruger, then come back to you, uh, E.J. McMahon. Um, the, the shifting political dynamics that have happened in really the, the last few years, um, but especially so around this budget when the governor was facing so much scandal, so many calls to resign, uh, so much going on there. But the political dynamics had already been shifting since Democrats took control of both houses of the legislature and then increased that control with, with super majorities. How, how have the shifting power dynamics in Albany uh, impacted the budget decision-making processes that we've, we've just seen, Senator Kruger? So my bills actually get passed in the Senate nowadays. That's one thing <laughs> that has happened. Um, that feels, feels pretty good. Um, we are passing more progressive democratic bills through both houses. Of course, we will see how many make it through the governor's desk with or without a veto. That's always the next stage that we are now entering. Um, and I think, yes, the winds are shifting um, progressively throughout the state of New York. You know, we won democratic seats in traditionally red areas of upstate New York and redistricting will take place before the next election cycle and based on census data um, we lost population upstate gained it downstate and that traditionally has meant you're gaining in blue areas losing in red areas um, my my conference is committed to being a statewide party recognizing that it's a big tent and that the issues for Syracuse and Rochester and Buffalo are very different than the issues in the Hudson Valley or in Western New York. And we want to be there and resp be responsive to everybody's issues, even though we understand that will require different politics in different parts of the state. I, for example, know not that much about farming although not as little as people think either, to be honest. Um, and, but I recognize that much of our state is agriculture and we have not been doing a good enough job at addressing agricultural issues. I actually went around the state talking about marijuana as good for farmers, which farmers agree with. They were very excited about hemp and expansion of marijuana for farming reasons. Um, we want to make sure that we are being environmentally, not just sound stewards, but that we are upping the ante on everything we do from an environmental perspective. Because I don't know about you, but I've been watching the weather in Oregon and Washington State and California the last week or so. I do really badly at 120 degrees, mm. I'm just saying. Um, so we have to make sure that we are, we are upping the ante on everything we do on climate change and protecting our air and water. Let me ask you, let me ask you this before we come to EJ's assessment on this. The, the power that the legislature exerted over the budget process, was that significantly more this time around than in the past? Was there, has there been a major shift on that? 
at, that the governor in a weakened hand for multiple reasons was not able to push back as much as in the past and the legislature really drove the process more this time around or, or not the case? You know, I think people should remember that the way our constitution is set up, the governor has the vast majority of power over the budget process. Um, I'm a supporter of a constitutional amendment that would decrease some of his power within the budget and balance it out a bit more between the legislature and the governor. But the truth is the rules of the game didn't change, just our ability to coordinate as two houses of the same party around certain issues. And yes, the governor, as I recall, was also dealing with other issues more personal to himself during the, during the budget time mm -hmm. and still is. And we still don't know the punchline of how that story is going to play out. So he was somewhat preoccupied with other issues. But no, I don't think we had dramatically increased our power in the budget process. I like to believe we all get a little better at figuring it out every year. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's a learning curve. I know this was just my I guess, third year as finance chair. Um, you know, I set out every day to try to learn how to do something better. So hopefully by next year's budget process, I'll figure out some more tools in the toolkit that we weren't aware we had. EJ, your thoughts? Did you see a significantly changed political dynamic around some of these bigger decisions that were made in the budget process? Um, I tend to agree with the senator on this. And what I observed is I don't think that the, pro the actual the problems the governor actually didn't experience, which... Uh, began to really blow up uh, within a week or two of the, his presentation of the budget. I don't think they affected the outcome. I think the outcome is pretty much what what would have happened anyway. And I, I would make the following point about the governor. Despite his sort of pugnacious countenance, if you will, um, his tendency to be thin-skinned and, yes, vindictive uh, in the extreme in many ways, and, and his intolerance for people who disagree with him, he is extremely conflict averse. When he saw growing majorities in the legislature in his own party developing and that they were considerably to the left, in fact, to the left, even of where Senator Kruger was perceived to be 10 years ago or so, mm -hmm. uh, his tendency it, when he sees a parade developing is to the run to the front of that parade and declare himself the bandmaster. And what he did in this case, what we've seen here is a definitive end of Governor Andrew Cuomo, um, the fiscal, the, the force of fiscal restraint. I think the pandemic has provided cover for that. In fact, I have a whole article in the Manhattan City Journal magazine coming out in a, a week or two that makes this point that this budget is pretty much, this is the governor's budget. Um, and I, I it, for instance, and I'm sure you would agree with this, Senator, he put the tax increase on the table. Now, quite misleadingly, quite deliberately misleadingly, he put the tax increase on the table and then he and his budget director discussed it as if it was some contingent issue. We are going to do this tax increase if we don't get more money. No, that's not how it works. He proposed a tax increase. He did it knowing that if he didn't propose one, it could emerge from the legislature in a way he didn't necessarily control. He put that out and knew that it would become the basis for upward binning from the legislature, which is what happened. 
and um, he was seeking to control the general outline of that. I think the, the general spending outlines and, and revenue outlines of this budget are pretty much what he intended as the final result and what he expected to be the final result. And if none of the problems he experienced that couldn't remain a cloud over him had started to unfold in February, it would have been pretty much the same because I think the dynamic has changed. With the legislature, um, it's not just because the legislature has veto-proof majorities in both houses. And again, I don't mean to speak for you too much, Senator, but it's it's not doesn't mean it's easy for either house to simply say, "Snap, we're just going to override him." That that's that's not an easy thing to actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the broader dynamic in his own party is such that he 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 is conflict averse in a broad sense. He may be annoyed by, or even in present company accepted for sure, you know, like despise some people in the legislature, but he will, he will go broadly where they're going because he does not risk seen as being defeated or overridden by them. Which is interesting, by the way, because we've had governors who were willing to get in big fights and, and willing to risk losing just to stand on a certain ground. The problem he has Every governor is ultimately the backstop. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a very senior legislative fiscal staffer in during one of the most troubled portions of, say, 1991, when Mario Cuomo was tearing his hair out over the budget. Um, the bottom was falling out of the budget. There were tremendous gaps. And the legis- he was saying, please come to the table with me. We have to do some things. I need you to work with me on this. And the legislature was basically ignoring him. And I remember talking to this person. I was then the Senate, the Assembly Minority Staff Secretary in Ways and Means. And I said, gee, you know, the, the stuff that uh, is unfolding here, I think we're going to take yet another, uh, the, the bond, the credit rating agencies are going to take our credit rating down again. And this guy said to me, he said, listen, never forget, it's his credit rating. Okay. The, literally, it's not their credit rating. It's his, <laughs> he's the one who's end up taking the credit and getting the blame. The governor, no matter what his ideology is, uh, he at the end of the day, he's the one who has to make it all add up. And he's creating, if he hopes to be governor indefinitely, which perhaps he still does, he's creating bigger problems for his future, I would say. I don't expect uh, Senator Kruger to agree with this fully, but I mean, I think there's a big problem. And I think that he's the one who's going to, you know, he, the governor, whoever is governor is going to be the one holding the bag in a few years if these problems mushroom the way I, I'm not alone in thinking they will. So I have to say, I think I agree with EJ's analysis of the governor and his role and our role and what happened. I just don't agree with him on where we are in the future, because I don't think any of us have a crystal ball. And when you look at budget projections, you know, with all due respect, even the best people out there, you try to go out more than three years, you have no idea. We just don't have any idea. So, you know, but otherwise I thought that EJ's sort of laid it out very coherently. And yes, having the ability to override a veto is not the same as actually pulling together your soldiers and saying, now we're doing it, folks. So I don't, you know, we got some real wins, we thought, in the budget. But I think EJ's analysis is right. The governor saw where the wind and the currents were pushing us all and said, I can do that. I can take credit for it. And by the way, as a legislator, if I can get things done 
that I want done and the governor takes credit for it, I understand that's the way the game is played. So I just, uh, if I can return to where you started, Senator, a little before, you know, whatever your opinion of the spending increase in the taxes, there's a lot of money going out the door, certainly in the next few years and education aid, you know, fully funding sound basic education foundation aid is a significant um, amount of money. How should New York state be tracking these dollars and how will the um, people, residents of New York know that they're getting value and they're getting the results. These kids have suffered during the pandemic and we've always, and many have argued for a sound basic education. Are we really going to get education value? And as you said, the rental assistance, the excluded workers fund, that $800 million for small businesses in very little pots, that's going to be hundreds of, of grants. How are we going to track those? And how do we know we're going to get some value? That's one of the concerns that I think is very legitimate. I do too, and I think you and your organization and I have always agreed that there are models that other governments use, even New York City uses, that New York State made them use, but we don't make ourselves use them. So right, if you live here in New York City, you know that there's management reports you can look at multiple times a year and compare outcomes on all kinds of data points. You might like the model, you might not like the model, but there's a, there's a model and a history and you can track. Um, I think I've carried a bill off and on for years to do the same at the state level um, because that just makes sense to have you know, something to look at and compare where we got, um, both on spending and on program models. The same way as I'm, I'm constantly talking about, you look at a program, you say, did it work? If it worked, let's expand upon that. If it didn't work, let's stop and reevaluate what we can do to make it work better. So, you know, I happened to be on the phone with the OTADOC commissioner today, but I wasn't saying it's not working, by the way. I actually think the system is working. They've got over 120,000 applications in already for emergency rent. They're going to start paying money out, I think he said, in five, six weeks. Um, landlords are participating, tenants are participating, um, the community organizations providing help to people who need it are participating. I actually think while we had a trial run previously with some state money and it didn't work well, we actually learned what didn't work and are not repeating those mistakes. Um, and yes, it, you know, it's a challenge to, but it's absolutely doable. We have all kinds of models that we know work in evaluation of government programs. Um, and unfortunately, the state just isn't willing to really do that. And I don't understand why not, because not only can we guarantee ourselves better outcomes, it's not the end of the world to try something and then admit it didn't quite work. And now we're going to fix it because that's how you do grow models that are successful. Exactly. And Patrick, you wrote a, a, a piece last year listening to SAGE advice, um, which harkened back to the Governor's SAGE Commission, which recommended performance management. Actually, a good set of recommendations, sadly, never implemented. Patrick, can you just remind us uh, what, what you recommend in that report for performance management for the state? Well, yeah, it gets back to what Senator Kruger was just saying, is that this isn't a foreign concept. Both other states do this, local governments do this. And the governor's own spending and government efficiency commission at the beginning of his, his first term also recommended implementing a, a comprehensive performance management system. So the way that that works is, is exactly that. 
asking government to set goals ahead of time, transparently, what benchmarks they want to achieve, how they're going to get there, and then retrospectively look and say, did we do it? And if we didn't, how do we do things better? So that's kind of what performance management is in a nutshell. But, you know, when you get more concretely, what does that answer? We've talked about school aid, Medicaid infrastructure in this discussion. If you have a performance management system, you could say, did the kid and the parents walking out of school think my school is improved because of the increased investment? Are you managing care for Medicaid enrollees with the highest needs? Are you fixing roads and bridges and, and rebuilding uh, you know, pedestrian spaces and things like that? Setting those goals and I think letting the public know what those goals are is something that they deserve. And also that taxpayers just deserve the best results we can, we can drive. Go ahead, EJ. Well, I, I, I wanted to agree. I think that, first of all, that report that uh, CBC and Patrick did on SAGE was excellent. And that was calling attention to those very good ideas that the Cuomo administration came up with and then kind of dropped. I think the senators got some excellent proposals on bolstering that at the state level. And another proposal Senator Kruger has that I think would help in the general way um, that I would hope to see her conference and the assembly pick up would be the, and would help in this area that the Senator mentioned of the legislators feeling like the, the governor they, has too much leverage say in the budget process. I think that they could b make better use of their own position if they established a legislative budget office of the sort the Senator has recommended and proposed in legislation, a, a, legis a model in the congressional budget office, which among other things would let the legislators themselves be better informed about what it is they're dealing with and the, 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 the cost and, and uh, trade-offs of proposals they've made and enacted. And that could play a role also in program evaluation. It provides, it plays a very useful role in California, what's called the fiscal analyst office there. And I think could play a really good role here, especially since frankly, since the same party dominates both houses now and thus both fiscal committees, um, it wouldn't necessarily be a whole new bureaucracy. It could be a way of re just realigning staff and having as we said, the CBO model, but a legislative budget office of the sort that senators propose legislation. I, I think you renewed that legislation, Senator, did you this session? You know, but, I, I have a feeling I gave it to a new senator who okay. asked, I have to double check. But I think that's yeah. a great idea. I think that again, because the problem is that the legislature has not, I think, held the governor's feet to the fire on his own reporting deadlines on financial plan reports or met its own for that matter. And that's a habit that goes back a while. It not, it's not, it didn't just start. And I think that, um, again, the legislature could have better, could, could craft better tools itself for program evaluation and oversight. And, it, and, and would, regardless of what the, whether the governor liked it or not. And I think that's, uh, no matter who the governor is, I think that's a very good thing to do and the legislature should do it. I think this is this is something that I can picture all of uh, the three of us working together on, and I'll I'll throw into the mix because um, uh, uh, some budget process reforms that maybe we can discuss. Because I will say I do not believe that we need to wait for two weeks, let alone six weeks, for enacted budget report. I believe, like other jurisdictions, including the one uh, New York City, that will adopt its budget that we can actually get a financial plan very soon after the handshake because the one actually exists and literally learning six weeks later that there was $4 billion more, almost a year of tax um, receipts recognized six weeks later. 
um, is just, I, I would say, nothing less than unconscionable. And so I'll throw that into the mix of us working on reforms together because we like outcomes, but sometimes they depend on the processes of accountability, transparency, right. and working together. And this is the kind of thing we can, many New Yorkers can rally around. You know, I think at one time I had introduced a constitutional amendment to change the state fiscal year because we do our budget to have to by April 1, but April 15th, you actually find out more information about your revenue going forward than you have the rest of the year. Because even though taxes are paid quarterly, that's the big one. And so we tie our own hands by forcing ourselves into deciding a budget two weeks before we have perhaps some of the most relevant data points. But changing the constitution to change the budget year <laughs> is also its own set of nightmares. So You don't have to change the constitution to do that. That's yep. statutory. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. Thank you. You can just do it. There we go. I, I, I can't remember where it was, but talking with uh, state controller Tom DiNapoli at one point, he, you know, he's very loath to take stances on, on a lot of those types of things, but he at least indicated it was a concept worth exploring uh, anew. So that was a little while back. It would be maybe good to see um, his stance on this sometime, sometime soon. Does CBC have a position on that? Um, I, I think that we have prioritized our positions on budget on budget reform and changing the state fiscal year has not been at the top of the list. Okay. But Patrick is <laughs> is now revisiting and doing some work on, on budget reform proposals, and we'll see where we come out on this. And, and I know I've had this discussion with EJ. I've had this discussion with the esteemed um, finance secretary of the Senate recently. Um, so I, I think... Um, you know, more, more to come and more, really, more really important stuff. Sometimes people's eyes glaze over. But again, coming back to where we started, where the senator started, there's billions and billions of dollars going out the door in new spending. Boy, there are so many people hurting and so many students who need the help. Whether you, whether you agree with these programs or not, let's make sure we have value and whatever we can do to work together because New York, you know, has the resources now that it's never had before. As I said in the beginning, an astounding number, $209 billion, a $36 billion increase over two years. Um, if we get value for that, we should see some good, some good outcomes. And Patrick, if you're, if you're taking on budget scheduling as a challenge, look <laughs> at when the school boards have their elections and what the school's budget years are, because that also makes no sense in relationship to when we pass state budgets and People have explained that's how they always did it because everyone was a farmer and they could only go and vote when the plants didn't have to go in or come out. And I was like, wait, 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 how many, how many farmers are in the overall voting population on school budgets? But you can give yourself that assignment also because I couldn't figure that one out. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot, and this has been an effective brainstorming session. There's a lot, even notwithstanding <laughs> the political dynamics um, that, that we should think about uh, making changes to. The best podcasts are effective brainstorming sessions. I like it. Uh, I think we've given people plenty of, of thought to uh, and numbers to, to chew on. Any Anything else you wanted to try to get to, Andrew? Or are we good to say goodbye? Well, I think we're good to say goodbye, but I think we, we have could, three more podcasts to schedule. Yeah, exactly. We could keep going here. I, I'm, like, I'm, I'm holding my tongue asking a question I want to ask, but we, we, we've... we've talked long enough and and have given people a lot of food for thought here so 
Uh, State Senator Liz Kruger, EJ McMahon of the Empire Center and Manhattan Institute. Thank you both so much. Patrick Orecki, of course, uh, from CBC. And for Andrew Ryan, uh, I'm Ben Max, and we will talk to you next time on What's the Data Point? Thank you.